there's something quite um, poetic about two years into a pandemic where everyone's so used to working from home, I'm still attending calls where we're having audio problems. <laughs> I'm wondering if I use this microphone, might you be able to hear me? There we go. The legend himself has spoken. Summers, can you hear me? I can, but I bet this audio is terrible. Um, it's not too bad, actually. Because this is the microphone on the side of my headphones rather than my uh, wave microphone. But if it's doing the job, it's doing the job. It certainly is doing the job, right? Might as well get straight to it. I can hear you clearly. We have plenty of people already joined. So this is a Reddit talk. I'm your host, NLP228, and this is a tech special. If you've not attended a Reddit talk before, this is essentially your opportunity to ask any questions you want to Summers. Uh, Summers, do you want to just introduce yourself? Um, let us know kind of what got you into F1 and what you're currently doing. Okay, so yeah, I, I basically look after the technical side for motorsport.com. You will also see my articles appear on Autosport uh, because obviously the network uh, are connected. I've been really reporting on Formula One now for probably just over 10 years uh, from my own blog to start with and then obviously moved into doing some freelancing and, and working for a number of different outlets. I get to work with a legend that is Giorgio Piola, uh, which is always fun. Obviously, we're having a fantastic this season, this season in terms of the technical side of a thing. So I'm sure there are going to be many, many questions. Absolutely. And I've got a stack of questions as well. So if we run out, I've got plenty to give you. So uh, the way this is going to work is if you've got a question to ask Summers, just raise your hand and we'll ping you in. Um, and then just simply unmute yourself, say hi and ask your question. If we do kind of pick you, if you could just make sure you're in a quiet room so you, there's not loads of background noise. And if we could also please ask that you've got um, a you know, pretty good internet connection. So you don't say anything you wouldn't say on the sub. Someone's just taken his time kind of in his spare time to kind of talk to everyone. So be friendly. If for whatever reason you can't ask a question, I don't know, let's say you're supposed to be at work and your boss does not know you're listening to a Reddit talk, uh, leave a question in the thread and me and Yepe will kind of pick from there. Um, I'm not the only host. We've also got Yepe. Unfortunately, uh, Yepe is not feeling great. He's he's mute. He's muted for this um, uh, this whole talk. But right, let's get straight to it. Okay, Summers, I'm going to start you off with an easy one uh, from myself, which is if you could pick any technical regulation that the FIA banned over the years, and you could reintroduce it to Formula One, what regulation would it be, and why? Um, that's such a difficult one because obviously where we currently are with this new set of regulations, you're in a in a position where a lot of things that have worked in the past wouldn't technically work with this particular set of cars. I mean, all, all the sort of things that I really have loved throughout the course of you know what I've reported on are things like DAS, blown diffusers, double diffusers, uh, F ducts, drag reduction devices, as in not DRS but the ones that only ever got raced by Lotus. There's lots of some or there's so many things that you could really dive into, I guess, but people will always talk about six wheels and uh, mass dampers and that sort of thing. So there's huge amount of tech that has been banned from the sport and trying to bring something back in might be quite a difficult task, I'd imagine. Yeah, I suppose it's not quite as easy as picking and choosing uh, one piece of tech that worked, I don't know, 30 years ago uh, and stick it onto a car. Right, we have Steve from Latvia. Well, I have a feeling you've joined us on a previous talk as well, if yes, I'm not yes, mistaken. Yes, I did, actually. I was here, yes, last time. 
Anyway, hi, like I said in the previous talk, my name is Steve. I've been watching Formula One for 20 years of my life at this point, and um, well, more than 20 years. And my question for you is like, what would you say is the most ingenious uh, technical advancement made by a, you know, made by F1 or made by F1 team that was whether it's something we still use or something made by, you know, illegal by FIA of the very next day, next race or very next season? Well, I think the one thing that really springs to mind, because it's something that we all could be using in our day-to-day lives, and Formula One has really pioneered the technology and, and, and has then moved onwards from there into aviation and all of that sort of stuff. Obviously, aspects of Formula One have a grounding in aerospace anyway, but the one thing that, that immediately springs to mind is carbon fibre. You know, It's the, the, the largest material that we use currently um, in the sport, and obviously is a, a way of saving weight. Um, it is something that we use on a day-to-day basis without perhaps even realising it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as an innovation that has then transformed not only Formula One, but has had a, a widespread appeal across everything that we do, I, I would go for, for carbon fibre com- composites. Very great. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. A great opening question. Matt, I've just seen one that's been posted in the thread by uh, Kilroy TNT that says, do tire compound specs have a time penalty in regards of standard lap time like before? They seem to be the same now. So if I understand that question correctly, you know, in the past, Pirelli would often say small, small, soft, medium, and hard. Um, this one's five tenths quicker than you know, the soft might be half a second quicker than the medium, the medium half a second. Are those, if I understand the question correctly, do tire spec compounds have the time penalty in regards of standard lap time? So, you know, do those gaps still exist? Um, the user saying they seem to be the same now. I guess what makes this one quite difficult is that in the races, generally speaking, the drivers will kind of prefer the harder tires anyway, because even though they're slower, they're technically faster over a stint. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the step in performance from one tire to the next is still there. It is marginal compared to how it used to be. There was a much larger gap between between the compounds. But as you say, that is kind of muddied by the fact that uh, we, we're not really seeing the soft tire used at all, uh, unless people are going to gamble at the end of a race because of safety car situation or, or red flag or, or, or something along those lines. But we're only really seeing the soft tyre used during qualifying, which is something, I don't know if you're aware of this, that there's going to be some tests done next year during certain races of, uh, of a new style of qualifying, which will use the different tyre compounds in, in the different qualifying se- sections, uh, which could be quite interesting. So you'll get the hard tyre being used in, in Q1, the medium used in Q2, and then the soft tyre used in Q3. Uh, so that could be a, a sort of alternative good use of the, the compounds themselves. Um, but you have to remember that Pirelli were kind of given this remit with this particular tyre as we move to an 18-inch wheel to improve the product in as much as longevity. They were asked to be able to make these tyres um, more robust in the way in which that they, they operate rather than having this massive fall off on a cliff, uh, which we've seen you know, in, in the past with the, the chocolate sorts of of tyres. It's a difficult task I always find for Pirelli because they always seem to be on the wrong end of of um, the, the so- side of marketing, uh, which is what they're really in the sport for. Uh, and it is a difficult task for them to, to really give the, the product out and obviously give the performance that the, the, the teams are looking for. And of course, they don't actually get loads of testing, do they, before they've got to actually produce a tyre for the following season? 
No, that, that is problematic in many respects, and and more so in the the fact that, for argument's sake, for this year we we were using mule cars. You know, that they weren't using ground effect cars like like we have this year. I still don't like the term to use ground effect, if I'm honest. But as everybody else calls them ground effect cars for this particular topic, we'll call them that. But yeah, that that's problematic in as much as that the downforce levels that they were seeing during their modelling uh, and test data is going to be different to what they've experienced when, once the tyres uh, are actually in use. And I think that's probably why we've seen um, such high tyre pressures, because there was talk that when we moved to the 18-inch rim that we would see some lower tyre pressures as well. And hopefully next year, when they've had a bit more experience with, with these particular cars, we might start to see that tumble a little bit as well. All those tyre pressures have started to creep up, haven't they? Next up, I think we've got Roaming Dutch. So if you just unmute yourself and ask someone a question. Cheers, gentlemen. How are you guys uh, doing? Is this regulation package that's introduced uh, this year enticing enough to uh, attract new privateers? Got Volkswagen with their brands. They've signed a memorandum to come in at 2026. But is it also enticing enough for privateers to join this party? Or are we getting a manufacturers-only thing like almost Formula E is heading to? Oh, that is a good question. <laughs> yeah, it is a very good question. I think that there's two two ways to attack this question. I mean, the reason that we're seeing Volkswagen and Porsche get involved is because they want to come in from a powertrain point of view. Although they potentially might take on board a team as well, uh, because you want that kind of works relationship. I don't think that's ideally where they, they want to see themselves. They want to see themselves on the powertrain side of things. In terms of other teams coming into the sport, we've also had Andretti putting their hand up and saying, well, we, we, we want to get in on the action. Uh, and unfortunately, it appears that FOM have decided that it's so, sort of a closed loop at the moment. They're happy with the number of teams that they've got and the balance that we've got at the moment. Uh, and maybe we won't see another team come in for maybe a couple of years until things start, start to settle down. Now. From my opinion, that might not be the right route to take uh, because obviously you want more competition. But I do understand why they're trying to balance things out, especially when we, we're just going through you know, some problematic things in terms of the cost cap and you know, the way that the world is currently in terms of economics. So you don't want to really end up in a situation where we were a few years ago where you have teams come in and they simply can't survive because they're having to operate beyond the budget that they are initially expected to operate at. Yeah, that's a great point. Those three teams that joined in, I think it was 2010, wasn't it, Summers? We had those three teams kind of join, all expecting a budget cap, and they were just nowhere compared to the rest of the rest of the grid. Yeah, and no, I think the, the thing that we have to remember is that although we've got this budget cap in place, all it has really done is lower the threshold for the, the big teams. The smaller teams now know what to spend, but they're still not getting up to that limit. You know, They're not going to be spending as much as the likes of Ferrari, Mercedes, and Red Bull. You know, if you, you only have to look at the upgrades that Haas have bought this season to understand how limiting they are in terms of their, their budget allocation for, you know, adding performance to the car throughout the course of the season. Roaming, thank you very much for your question. Uh, just before I pass over to Tropical Aviator, I just want to remind everyone listening, if you've got a question for Matt, he is the cleverest F1 tech person I've ever spoken to. Granted, he's one of the only F1 tech people I've spoken to, but he's absolutely brilliant and he's super friendly to get your hand up and we'll bring you in. Right, Tropical Aviator, you're next. I'm from Canada. Yeah, been watching F1 for about 15 years. I have a question also about these regulations, but more about their ability to provide the close racing that we were kind of looking forward to. So I guess last year and the years before, 
it wasn't as close. It's definitely better this year, especially in the first few races we had uh, Charles and Max constantly swapping back and forth. But now it's kind of calmed down, uh, I guess, as we've gone towards the middle of the season. And we're not seeing, you know, leaders uh, change every lap and three cars into side by side into turns which I guess maybe we were kind of expecting. We don't really see that kind of racing in spec series either. I don't know of a single racing series that has that kind of competition. So I guess the question is, do you think we're moving uh, on the right path with these regulations? And where do you think they get us in a few years? How close will the racing be? Is it a good trajectory? I think the the thing to remember about the previous set of regulations compared to what we are, we have currently is that the old regulations had the issue of dirty air. We still got that problem to to some extent, but it's a much smaller extent than we had in the past. Also, I think that there's perhaps not really been too much credit being given to Pirelli for the job that they've done based on, as we discussed earlier, the limited amount of testing that they have at their disposal to give a, a you know a tire that is capable of staying in the window for a, a serious length of time and allow these kind of battles that we have seen. I think the big problem that we will have as we go through this regulation set is trying to keep the field spread down. And obviously, we've got changes coming in the the next couple of races in terms of the flexi plank scenario that we've seen, and I'm sure we'll discuss later. And there are more changes coming for 2023 uh, to try and rein in some of the development that we've already seen reduce a bit of downforce and also limit the problem of porpoising and bouncing that we've seen. But in terms of the racing itself, I think one of the biggest perhaps issues that we've got is that we're never going to see lap after lap people overtaking one another. And I don't remember personally a time in Formula One's history where we've ever really seen that. You know, whenever people tend to think about Formula One from the past in the 80s or 90s, they get rose tinted glasses and expect uh, to get this brilliant product that we never really had. We had it in bits and and, and pieces, uh, which is currently where we are now. To answer briefly, we've got a better product, in my opinion, right now. But I still think there's some room to manoeuvre to get something a little bit better, Um, certainly in terms of field spread, because... Unfortunately, we've got sort of a lead pack, Mercedes just in behind them. And then the rest of the pack are sort of trailed off down the back end. And, you know, we are seeing them lapped on on many occasions. So um, I do think there's still work to do. Cool. Thanks. Appreciate it. No worries. You mentioned there, Summers, that there's a few things that you'd like to see done better. I've noticed on your Twitter feed, you have in the past spoken about DRS and how the, the sport is still reliant on DRS. And to be honest, I think it's probably always going to be to a degree. But one thing you've spoken about is how you'd like to see it changed. Can you just kind of elaborate more on what you'd like to see done? DRS is a is a band-aid in many respects, but it is an unfortunate one that's required in order to keep the, the pack, the chasing pack in, in close proximity to one another. The biggest problem I currently see with the formula as it stands is that we end up with DRS trains, which isn't really an exciting aspect of racing, if you ask me. Personally, my approach to DRS, and, and many people might think that this is a bit strange, is to use it more of a, as a push-to-pass system in as much as that you have so many pushes per session, whether you decide to operate this over the course of qualifying and the race or just the race itself. But it then becomes a strategic thing. So you don't need to be inside one second. You just need to be in the zone. And then you can use it or not use it, and it becomes a strategic tool. 
for both overtaking and defending. And I think most people have a problem with DRS because DRS is one of those things where you can't really defend against it for very long. It's it, it's an inevitable overtake um, after a certain period. And I think that's why people tend to think, well, we should really try to get rid of it, rid of it if we can. But unfortunately, I don't ever really see a point at which we will actually dispose of DRS entirely. Yeah, it's a funny old one because if I think about Formula E, I don't particularly like fan boost, but what I really like is that attack zone activation, which leads to, I don't know the exact rules behind it, but it's it's a bit more strategic. A driver can use it for defending as well. Right, so we've got a question that's been posted um, from Sputniki. So, hi Matt, big fan of your chats over on Mr. Apex. Would love to get your thoughts on the power unit battle. Ooh. Based on what you've heard, is there any indication as to which PU is currently the strongest and which one carries the most potential for development over the next few years? I know that PU specs are technically locked, but reliability upgrades are allowed. And we all know the teams will try to find a way to improve performance in an indirect way, if possible. Thanks. Okay, this is turning into a Matt Trumpet style multi-part question but I'll answer <laughs> as best as I can um, that's his alt account yeah it may be he may have posted that under some some other pseudonym okay so there's a couple of things to think about the first one being is that the power units aren't technically locked yet yes the main combustion element of the power units is homologated at this point but there's still a waypoint going into September, I think it is off the top of my head. Um, you'll have to excuse me because I have so many dates going through my mind uh, with stuff like this. But the ERS system can still have one more upgrade. And it's understood that all of the manufacturers will have an upgrade on the ERS, which then potentially has the, the potential to unlock performance from the combustion side of things as well. In terms of the pecking order from for, for the power units, you'd have to say that Mercedes have kind of dropped slightly adrift of Ferrari and Red Bull in that respect. But I think that the reason that we're seeing that is that Mercedes have perhaps opted for a higher reliability curve over performance, whereas we're seeing failures on, on Ferrari and uh, the Red Bull-powered teams. Obviously, it is a Honda in disguise, but it is badged as a Red Bull. Um, and then obviously the, the other team that we, we we forget about in this scenario is the uh, Alpine Renault power unit, uh, which they've made massive strides. Uh, and that is purely because they've sort of taken a two-year cycle uh, to come round to the, the power unit where they're currently at. So I think we're still very similar in terms of Red Bull and Ferrari in terms of their capabilities. I think Mercedes are just slightly adrift of them. And it's difficult really to peg where Alpine are because they're the only team uh, running that particular power unit. So they're, they're a little bit adrift in, in regards to the other teams in being able to understand where they lie in the pecking order. I'm great to hear you mention Alpine. I've still got hope that my boy Fernando might might have a title challenge one day. But I, don't, oh, I think that's um, possibly me being a bit too ambitious. Can you just explain, um, in terms of reliability upgrades, how teams can use them strategically? Because you know, going back to what the question said, if I think about Ferrari, it seems as though they've got peak power that's as good as anyone's, but they're unreliable. I guess their development method or their, their kind of ideology is if they can get those reliability upgrades on, they might may even extract more power. So the gap between themselves and, say, Mercedes might increase. The, the problem that you have there, Anil, is that under the homologation process, you have to then realistically prove that this is not a performance-orientated upgrade. 
Um, it is something specifically designed to, re, you know, improve reliability uh, and only has a fringe benefit in terms of performance. So the FIA will monitor heavily how that is going to go on going forward, because obviously between when the next homologation point is for the ERS, we won't then have any changes made apart from reliability upgrades until the 2026 power unit is deployed. It's a difficult one really for the FIA to try to police this situation. We've already gone through it uh, when we've had freezes in the past, like when we froze the V8 uh, towards the end of its life cycle, and you ended up with teams making huge strides in terms of performance, even though they were making reliability upgrades, supposedly. Um, so they'll, they'll have to monitor that quite closely, I think. But as I mentioned, because of the ERS still having a capability to be changed going into this last homologation point, there could still be some offset from the performance that you could gain on the combustion side, because obviously you can work the ERS differently to get different maps, etc. So yeah, it's, it's a difficult one, really. But the FIA are going to have to work hard to, to rein the teams in, really. I look forward to the inevitable scandal that will come out of it. Right, next up, we've got Lucide's position. Ask away. Good afternoon. Thank you for this. It's actually extremely exciting and spontaneous. My question is about the future of F1 tires. With the sports agenda to achieve net zero carbon and also Sebastian busting out his personal vehicle at the British Grand Prix, could you give us any insight to how Pirelli or other tire manufacturers will contribute to creating that, that sustainable product and fashion of tires, if that makes sense? Okay, so I, I kind of think that Pirelli already do a, a pretty decent job in that respect, just purely from the, the way that they recycle tires that are not used uh, throughout the course of a, a race weekend. However, there are always sets that are left behind that are unused, and that is going to be changed within the regulations for next year. So we're going to see uh, a change in the amount of tyres that are actually taken around the world, uh, which from a logistical point of view is obviously it's a waste, and we want to reduce waste as much as possible. However, you also have to, to bet on the problem uh, of having uh, scenarios unfold, especially when we're talking about wet weather tyres. I think that's perhaps where Formula E have got got their tyres a little bit better in some respects because their supply, Michelin supply, one spec tyre, whether it's for wet or, or dry. But I'm not sure we want to go down that route with Formula 1. We still want a high-performance product, and that's what Pirelli provide. Obviously, it will have its detractors. It has had many issues in the past, some of which, unfortunately, are not Pirelli's fault, but they've taken the burden for. But in terms of the sustainability aspect, uh, I'm not sure that Pirelli are the ones that we should be pointing the finger at. It, you know, it's things like moving across to biofuels, which we are going to be doing for 2026, and and moving the sustainability goals in other directions. And I also think that one of the things that uh, a lot of people seem to forget is that these power units are the most thermally efficient powertrains on the planet. You know, and, and they're running uh, Formula One cars at over 200 miles an hour, uh, and we're running them on a thim thimble of fuel, technically, compared to what they used to run when we were using V8s. The biggest issue, and myself and Neil have had this discussion in the past, is weight. We need to reduce the weight of the cars in the future to reduce the and offset the problems that, that arise from carrying additional weight. Excellent. That was a great question and a great answer. 
it's worth pointing out actually there has been one formula one season in recent times where the tire supplier was asked to produce basically a bulletproof tire and that was in 2005 where there were no tire pit stops so technically speaking from a sustainability point of view that season was perfect compare that to say 2011 where Pirelli were having to mass produce significant numbers of tires because we had three or even four pit stops a race. Uh, Lucy's position. Uh, do, do you have a follow up question, or is that it? I'm, I'm giving you. I'm giving you the chance for another one, which is rare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. I appreciate it. That was that was it. I like to just compliment that. Yeah, that was a great answer. Thank you for always pointing out how Pirelli's doing a good job and leaving this conversation in a positive light. Yeah, that was it. Thank you. Great stuff. Okay, so I've got a question from the chat. So this is from Kcov eight one five. Before 2019, Formula One had the tyre rainbow. So this was, I think it was seven different tyre compounds. I can't remember off the top of my head, but we basically had a Hypersoft, a Hypersoft, a Supersoft. Hypersoft, Ultrasoft, Supersoft, Soft, Medium, Hard, Super Hard. Yeah, oh, there was a Super Hard that they never used, wasn't it? I think they initially thought they were going to take it to Suzuka, but they didn't. Anyway, um, wow, I can't believe you, you remember you remembered all the soft compounds there. <laughs> so the question is, Formula One removed those and instead went a more simple red, white, and yellow striped compounds. Do you think it was a good idea to have such a wide variety of tyre compounds? Or do you think it's better to simply have three tyre compounds like we do today? Well, in reality, we actually have five five compounds. We have C1 through to C5. Most people only associate the fact that we have three compounds because that's what we see on the side wall of the tyre. But Pirelli make a choice based on going into each week weekend of which of the five compounds that they want to use at each particular venue. Uh, so this weekend, off the top of my head, because I posted this earlier and I should know it without even checking, I think we've got the C2, C3 and C4 compounds. So that's basically the middle of the of the road. So we've not got the hardest or the softest in in the batch. And they have to select that based on the temperature threshold that they think they're go- that they're going to be operating at at the race you know, the loads that the tyres are going to go through. There's a huge amount of data that they must have to pull through to understand which tyres are going to give the, the best performance. And obviously, the teams are all doing exactly the same thing. It's why we've, as I mentioned earlier, we run a minimum starting tyre pressure, which has unfortunately ballooned over the course of the last few races to uh, deal with the increasing downforce that we're seeing already. So for this weekend, for argument's sake, and I don't know if people understand what kind of road tyre pressures they run at, this weekend we've got 24 PSI at the front and 20.5 PSI at the rear. Now, most road cars would probably run somewhere in the region of, I don't know, 28 to 30 PSI, uh, depending on what kind of tyres and and, uh, size wheels you've got. So they're they're not dissimilar to road tyres in that respect. Something I'd dearly like to see lowered to give up some more performance. But in terms of the question itself, I'm not completely convinced that the the rainbow selection of tyres was the best route to go down. But it did give the viewer uh, an overview of the actual tyres that were being used every single weekend. Whereas now it's a little bit more complicated for people to comprehend the selection that's going on. As I mentioned, you know there is five compounds, but most people don't understand that factor. They're just seeing the red yellow and white sidewall uh, rather than the actual compound choice agreed it's definitely a bit simpler now but i kind of liked the the sheer number of compounds back then i also liked how there was effectively a tire just for monaco and singapore which was the hypersoft wasn't it yeah okay if they ever go back to that they need to 
come up with a better way of splitting the Ultrasoft and the Hypersoft because I still confused between them. <laughs> right. So I believe we've got Not Voyeur who yeah, should now be able to unmute and ask a question. Um, thank you so much. And thank you so much for organizing this as well. So my question is mostly regarding to the development. So if you could just uh, put some highlight and how Formula One is trying to get things relevant to maybe road cars or automobile industry in general, and how it can sort of work together with Formula E as well to introduce more sustainability and electric sort of things, if you if you understand uh, what I'm saying. Yeah, sure. I think you cut out briefly, but I think I understood that question. So Summers, I think that was just uh, in terms of Formula One's kind of future development and aligning itself with sustainability and I guess the general car industry, what would you like to see the sport do and possibly ties, I guess, strategically kind of do things along with Formula E possibly? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest issue that we, we've always got is that Formula One is an entertainment product at its core. And although there are roads in towards road relevance, as we've moved to 18-inch uh, wheel rims and the uh, lower-profile sidewalls this year, for argument's sake, I do feel that moving too closely alignment to the road industry could be problematic for the sport because of the entertainment aspect of it. But it does obviously have some synergy. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the level of road manufacturers involved. And the reason why you know Porsche and the VW group essentially are trying to get involved currently with the 2026 regulations. Now, if we think about the 2026 regulations, they're kind of taking away some of the electrification that we've seen uh, throughout this current power unit era. So they're kind of moving back towards more of a combustion element uh, and then redefining the sport compared to the likes of Formula E so that they can go off and do their thing uh, when you compare it to, to where we're currently at in, in Formula One. Um, so I think you have to diverge slightly. I mean, Formula One isn't, isn't really ever going to head into the electrification fully uh, as Formula E uh, have. So it's a difficult kind of task for Formula One to find their place and keep the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, Alpine, Renault, Honda, Porsche, etc., involved and excited about being in the formula when realistically they're only there to to try to sell their products, but it's not entirely relevant to the product that they are selling themselves. Wow, brilliant answer, very detailed. Uh, not voyeur. Do you have a follow up point to that? Oh no, thank you so much. I really like the answer and appreciate the opportunity again. And thank you for being here. Um, oh, no problem. Thank you very much. I think we all knew this question was going to come up when you're when you get summers involved. So. The next question is from the chat from, oh, is it Al Botson? I think. I hope I got that right. Okay. His question is, I feel like I've read so many different things about the effects of technical directive 39. I think it's 39, the one that's coming into play summers. Yes. Will it actually help with improving the bouncing felt by the drivers slash protecting their health? Or will it most likely affect teams like Red Bull who seem to have more flex in their floor? It's a bit of a, a twofold question in many ways because it depends on which part of um, Article uh, Technical Directive 39 or 39B as it now is you're, you're really looking at. You have to remember that we've got the aerodynamic oscillation metric that is being brought in, uh, which is one aspect and was the first as uh, first part of the technical directive that the FIA looked to introduce to reduce the amount of porpoising and bouncing that we're seeing. Um, and then on top of that, we've got things dealing with 
things like the, the plank flexing around, uh, the floor flexing around um, that we're trying to resolve with the with the technic with the second part of the technical directive. So the reason that those things have been brought up and why there's so much argument currently amongst the teams is because they feel that um, an advantage or a disadvantage might be brought upon one team or another. When we look at the flexi plank side of things, it's obviously going to have an impact on Red Bull and Ferrari because they are the two teams that have taken this particular direction. However, all I would say is that we've ended up with situations like this in the past where things have gone in a certain direction that the FIA aren't entirely happy with and they've outlawed them, but they haven't really changed the pecking order. In my opinion, I don't think that it will have a dramatic effect. It may bring Red Bull and Ferrari slightly back into the pack, but it's more about balancing everything out and stopping the problems that we've been seeing with the bouncing and the porpoising that we really have to deal with because it is realistically a health issue. You know, I certainly wouldn't want to be bouncing down uh, the straight at 220 miles per hour uh, with my head wobbling off my shoulders. So I can appreciate that the drivers probably uh, want to get rid of it quite quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we also saw those scenes of Lewis Hamilton struggling to get out the car at Baku, it looked pretty uncomfortable. Summers, you mentioned that this might affect Red Bull. I did see an interview with, I think it was a couple of weeks old now with Christian Horner, where he was kind of adamant that, you know, his team haven't done anything wrong and they'll be running the same floor going forward. It looks like it's obviously Ferrari and Red Bull that are perhaps doing something that the FIA aren't totally happy with. Um, do you think that any other teams might be involved or is it just them two? I, I think there's other tricks at play. It's that they're trying to rule out something very specific. I don't know how much you understand about what the um, technical directive actually covers off, uh, but it's to do with the way in which the, the, the plank flexes um, and also the wear pattern uh, that's created around the holes, the six holes in the bottom of the floor, uh, and that's where the measurements are taken from. Uh, the plank is allowed to wear by one millimetre over the course of a race distance. And basically, the assumption based on what the FIA's technical directive uh, covers off is that certain teams have found a route in which to reduce the amount of wear um, on certain parts of the hole. So the technical directive now means that you must, uh, that the wear is over 75% of the hole. So it's basically cutting off all of the problems uh, at the head and as I say it will cause teams to have to make redesigns because uh, you know they are infringing on the, the the technical directive as it stands what Christian Horner's saying is is that you know he, he's playing the, the political game at the end of the day his team he, his car is legal it is legal up until the point it is not legal just as it was when flexi wings flexi rear wings were were a thing where flexi front wings were a thing and he said exactly the same thing our car is legal well it is until it's not and the point at which it's not is now the belgian grand prix which is when the technical directive will be in force we have a follow-up question from louch in the group that says hi summers thanks for the reddit talk i would like to know how difficult it is for you to cover hidden technologies like das f duct double diffuser because most teams try as much as possible not to not to reveal them or delay the reveal as much as possible how different is your job when covering this stuff compared to the coverage of the more regular updates like side pods and wings actually this is a great question because i remember when das got revealed and 
straight away. I think I, I think I WhatsApped you or I just saw, I saw you tweet about it. And, you know, people on Reddit or, you know, on Discord or whatever were trying to find footage of this DAS working. And I did wonder how do you do your job when you don't have the information at hand and you're you're kind of guessing almost. Yeah, I mean, that that's always problematic. I mean, obviously, the, the one thing that most people won't realise is the quantity of photography that I have at my disposal. In some cases, more than is publicly available. And so that kind of makes my life a little bit easier. Obviously, I've got the support of my colleagues in being able to get the photography that, that's required to, to be able to understand certain aspects uh, like, I don't know, let's say the F-duct for argument's sake, uh, because that was something that required you to be able to see under the covers of the car. DAS was something that was a bit more obvious to the eye as to what was actually occurring you know it was a movement of the steering wheel backwards and forwards uh, like a yoke of uh, an aircraft if uh, people aren't aware what das did the steering wheel moved backwards and forwards um, and with it obviously it changed the the angle of the the, the front tires these things are, are obviously more difficult to to try to pin down and create content around but there's also that game of having to do it because you need to get there and get it get it out because otherwise you know the the other people out there that do my job and and, and very similar jobs are obviously interested in getting the the clicks etc so you know there is a there is the danger of of being the last one over the line but also I don't like always to be the first one because there's some danger in being so um if there's a potential to be wrong on something I would rather be right and last in many respects. But yeah, my, my job has technically changed a little bit this season because of the way that we now have the documents posted uh, by the teams ahead of each race weekend, as there is a little bit less mystery than the, the, there was in the past. Great stuff. Yeah, those documents that the FIA seem to kind of share around, uh, they seem to have, there seems to be a range of detail that the teams go through. I have seen some teams literally just say, we've introduced part X because it's slightly faster or something whereas some teams need to go through a bit more detail right so next up i believe is fpc 26 and then we've got doglet as well so if you want to unmute yourself and ask away yeah thanks guys i am wondering going back to these conversations on the flexible floors just how far these new regulations will impact the actual two top teams because we've seen mercedes struggle a lot with the porpoising and yet they're the ones who seem to have the stiffer floor under the car. Is the advantage, do we think, coming from the flexible floor for the top two teams? Or is it a better approach to the construction of these two cars? And then in that case, do these new regulations mean that Mercedes, for example, stand a better chance of scoring the top two places with, within the next two races? I think the, the top two teams, Ferrari, Red Bull, have more latitude in terms of setup because of the flexible plank scenario. I don't like to call it flexi floor, which is what a lot of the outlets have been doing, is because it isn't a flexible floor. It is the plank that we're looking at, uh, which is the the lowermost section of the floor, uh, and the way in which that you take the measurements and the flex tests around the holes that are mounted within the floor, and they've kind of just stumbled across a loophole effectively. All of the other teams have then said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And they wish they'd kind of stumbled upon it themselves. 
And I think if the FIA hadn't stepped in, everybody would have moved in that direction anyway. So the FIA just sort of cutting off the development prior to it expanding beyond where it is currently, which is the situation that we've had in the past. And now we're under cost cap era and resource restrictions. I think it's a very good move from the FIA in many ways because it stopped the other teams having to play catch up and it bought the other two, the two teams that are sort of infringing without meaning to because they're not cheating. I will say, you know, this is not a cheat. They are technically not breaking any rules as it stands, but we want to bring them in line with what everybody else is having to do. So it will have some some effect, but it won't be, I don't believe, to be a huge effect, especially because we have the new AOM coming in place, which means that everybody will have to operate within that aerodynamic oscillation method metric sorry thanks uh and if you don't mind i would have a follow-up which would be to to which point can we allow then innovation to play a role in the sports uh insofar as the loopholes that are found are then quite quickly in the past years acted upon by the fia in terms of the regulations can we expect let's say in the next five years for f1 to look a little bit more like f2 in which the the chassis are much more stringently regulated and and have to look much more closely like one another i think the thing with f2 f3 etc they are spec series so you know you you're down to set up variances between those teams um in terms of Formula One, we will always have an aerodynamic formula. So the teams will always endeavour to be better than the other via aerodynamic means. Also, obviously, they have their own versions of suspension, etc. So there is a huge amount of development still available at the team's fingertips. But I think the FIA are trying to make it more... They're trying to narrow down the avenues in which that the teams can operate within the scope of the regulations that have been set out. And there's intent within regulations and there's uh, moving into the grey areas. And I think where Red Bull and Ferrari might have been caught out, perhaps one more than the other, is that they're sort of well within a grey area. And, And that's what the FIA are really trying to stamp out is get those grey areas sorted so that there's more of a level playing field and there's not a huge amount of spend going on to catch up to those problems. Perfect. Thanks. No problem. Great. Great question. Great answer. Right. Next up, we've got Doug Litz. Hey, guys. Thank you for uh, hosting this talk. It's always insightful and appreciated. I wanted to ask Summers. I mean, I was hearing his comment earlier about uh, Christian Horner and the, uh, the flexi floors, the flexi plank, sorry. Uh, he's not pretty confident that Red Bull is going to be impacted by the change. Why is that? Why do you? Why are you so confident that you know, Red Bull is is in breach of this regulation? Because we've seen the floor, we've seen the plank, and we've seen what they're actually what what they're doing around the the, the regulated holes. And so, one would have to suggest that changes would be needed to be made in order to comply with the new technical directive. But as I say. Christian Horner is talking in as much as that his car is legal, which is it's a comment that he's made in the past when right. they when they were doing things like flexi wings. So that, you know they are compliance. There's no two ways about it. They are compliance as the regulations currently stand. But with the new technical directive coming into place, then you know alterations might have to be made in order to 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 get in line. All right, and uh, a follow up question to this is. Um... 
What's the logic behind this this technical directive? Because the sport is about you know moving forward, and if a team has found a loophole, why is that an issue in this case? I think the biggest issue is, as I've mentioned here, is that if we don't, if they didn't rein this in as part of introducing their aerodynamic metric, we would end up in a situation where every team would then start to use a similar design, and then you end up in a situation where you're just spending money willy-nilly to get to the same points and this is part of what they've tr- been trying to reduce over the last few years anytime there's an innovation appear think of das for argument's sake it lasted a year because it was within the bounds of the regulations and there was nothing that the fia could actually do at that point because they couldn't change the regulations to outlaw it so they uh, allowed it to run for a year you know there wasn't a tangible benefit for other teams to then introduce it that season so you didn't see other teams bring it in for that particular season uh, and obviously, then it's outlawed from there. So I think that's it, it's just a growing pain of of a set of regulations as well, because you have to remember that these cars run very differently to the the set of cars that we've had in the past. You know, they run very stiffly sprung. Uh, they're running low to the ground, uh, to the track, uh, and they're not running with rake. Uh, and that's very different to how they were in the past. And that means that the measure on the plank is also going to be different because of that. Sure. All right. Thank you. No worries. I guess one potential upside, potentially, Summers, I guess, is if they do clamp down on some of these grey areas, it could reduce the field spread. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a fringe benefit of doing this sort of thing, is that as, as you narrow down the pathways in which there is for development, then obviously you should technically narrow the fields. I do, as we mentioned at the start of this, uh, I do think that the field spread is something that they really need to look at to try to, to narrow the gap in some ways. How they do that from a sporting context is going to be difficult, but we have got things implemented that are going to change certain things. I don't know if you're aware of the resource restriction handicap system that's in the background currently for CFD and wind tunnel. Oh, yeah, I do. But shall I, shall, go ahead. Here we go. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> okay, so, so basically each of the teams work to a coefficient, uh, let's say 100% of a certain amount of wind tunnel hours and CFD capability. Now. Depending on where you finish in the championship at the end of the season, for the first six months of the next season, you operate under a handicap based upon your position. So the lead team will have less capability than a team at the back end of the field. However, when you get to the end of June, as we've already just gone through, that flips to the current constructors championship points. And so you've had this movement in the, in the pack right now if you imagine Mercedes, they had 70% off the top of my head at the start of the season, and they moved to 80% from memory for being in third position, uh, and so on and so forth down the grid. The big shaker in that group is Alfa Romeo because they've come from, right from the back of the pack in towards the, the middle to back end of the pack. So that, in many respects, will have uh, an impact on the way that teams have to develop. Also, obviously, you've got the cap, cost cap in place, and then also. Next year, we're already seeing that the FIA are making changes for 2023 that are also going to impact aerodynamic development right now, whilst the cars are already being developed for 2023 anyway. All good points. And yeah, I guess those that CFD, wind tunnel allowance and the budget cap, they're not meant to have an immediate impact in reducing the field spread. But I guess the hope is over time, they will. So from the killer bill. So this isn't actually a tech question. But it's not a golf question, Thomas, and I know you want to talk about golf, but we're not going down in that direction. What do you think about removing tracks like Spa or Monaco from the calendar in favour of Jeddah? 
and Las Vegas, which are, I, I guess, as this user puts it, you know, flashy races. We, we've heard Liberty talk about destination races being their priority uh, compared to circuits like Spa, which have lots and lots of history, even if they're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, again, it comes down to the entertainment factor, doesn't it? And the sellability, if we can use that word, uh, of the sport in general. As you say, you know, destination races is kind of the way in which that Liberty have moved since they become the commercial arm of the the sport. Miami this year, for argument's sake, was massively on that end of the spectrum. And uh, I expect Las Vegas to be very similar in that respect, especially as Formula One have actually purchased ground in which to have the the pit garages, etc. in Las Vegas. So uh, that's a, an interesting move from the commercial arm of the company. I mean, personally, I can't see a calendar without Spa on it because I love the place. Anybody that's visited there, will tell you that it is a magnificent venue. But I understand from a commercial aspect why perhaps things are moving in a slightly different direction because money does lead the sport. And unfortunately, some of the classic circuits don't generate the kind of revenue that these new venues perhaps can. Uh, And that obviously is problematic. And perhaps we should have some kind of clause where, you know, historic venues have a a slot on the calendar or at least they're in rotation. I mean, I'll admit I'm not a massive fan of Monaco, but being close to the barriers and seeing the, the drivers do what they do around that, those streets is a different kettle of fish compared to seeing it on the TV. You know, you, you have to take some of the rough with the smooth in terms of the, the tracks that are, are available. But again, street tracks, you know, look at the start of this season and I, I think how many out of the first seven races were street tracks? Yeah, I it's think. unbelievable. It was like yeah. Baku, Miami... Uh, Melbourne, Jeddah, and then Canada, which is like a semi-permanent street circuit. Yeah, well, we got was Imola and Bahrain as te- as you know as permanent circuits. And it's it's funny actually because the racing at Silverstone, Bahrain, and Austria was incredible. Uh, and I think it made a lot of people kind of think, oh yeah, just these cars are very good at racing, but perhaps other circuits don't bring that out as much. Um, before we go to another question, Summers, can I just ask, given that you? You're making a career following and explaining the technology behind Formula One cars. How do you watch Formula One? And I've noticed you've put something on Twitter recently. It was after the Miami Grand Prix, which, you know, by the way, had a lot of overtakes. I had like 53 overtakes. There was quite a lot to talk about. And I remember a lot of people, especially on social media and even on the subreddit, said that race wasn't great. And I remember you put something interesting on Twitter about how the way you consume a Formula One race on television isn't necessarily the way the way in which the broadcaster is showing you the race. Yeah, I mean, I, I have had this discussion in the past uh, about actually running a Twitch stream uh, and me explaining how I watch a race and uh, just to see if people, A, watch the, the, the race in a similar way to, to the way that I do or, you know, just pick up nuggets of information as to, to how to get more entertainment from, from a race when invariably there are stages in a race that might appear to be quite monotonous. Um, But in terms of how I consume a race, I obviously have the uh, data at hand from F1 app and and that sort of thing. But you you can quite easily do it with the timing tower on the side of the screen as well if you don't actually want to pay for, you know, any additional uh, apps. Uh, And that's just trying to understand how strategy is unfolding and where windows of of opportunity are appearing in terms of strategy. You know, 
I'm always on the lookout for where's the pit window, i.e. how many cars back before the leader can make a, a stop without being interfered by those behind him. Because under the older regulation set from last year backwards, we would have a stage of a race where the leader would go off into the distance and he would build a gap and build a gap and build a gap to the point where it didn't really matter where the cars lay in behind because he was still going to come out ahead of them. Whereas we've had races this year where that isn't actually the case. Uh, They can't get away from the pack as quickly as they used to. Uh, And you end up in a situation where they have to basically play the waiting game for the cars behind them to to go into the pit lane and and do their stop before they can then make a stop. So those are the kind of things that that I pick up from, from just watching live without the help of the TV director who... Yeah, he's somewhat obsessed with cut scenes to crowds and people in garages when ideally we want to see action on the track. Do not get me started on the race director. We have many threads on the subreddit about the race director. Speaking of your Twitch stream, someone actually mentioned that in a question uh, saying, when are you going to start your Twitch stream? And then slightly more seriously, this is from Balls to Break 44. He follows up that point by saying, the difference between the bib supports hasn't been discussed enough. I don't even know what a bib support is. Don't children use that to eat? Um, he says, Mercedes have a static bib support in comparison to the spring dampened supports of Red Bull Racing and Ferrari. Is this significant in terms of performance? Might it allow them to run the front of the car lower? Okay, so basically the bib, if you're unaware, is the section of floor that pops out beneath the chassis and, ha- and holds the plank. So. Uh, you might have heard of a bib wing, which a lot of teams are now using, uh, and it's in that particular area. Now, hidden in amongst the bodywork there, most of the teams will use what used to be a metal stay uh, between the chassis and the bib in order that when it hit the, the bib hits the track, it deflects and then releases uh, and obviously helps with the wear side of things, which is, as we've already talked about with flexi planks, is quite an interesting uh, topic to, to diverge into. Now, the rules this year have actually allowed teams to be a bit more expansive in what they're doing in this particular area, uh, rightly or wrongly. As I say, that used to just literally be a piece of metal that, that bridged that gap. And now we've got teams using things like uh, hydraulics dampers, in the case of Ferrari, pass have a normal coil spring set up red bull have a belleville spring set up and although i heard heard you mention that mercedes have a static selection they don't they have sort of a leaf spring design uh, which we see on other designs as well and all of these are just mechanical ways of holding the bib in isolation so that it doesn't literally flex out of its position but you don't do these things for no good reason they are there for a purpose and the amount of modulation that can happen between the bib going up and the bib coming back down. So there are some tricks being done there. I'm not sure what the FIA will do about that going forward, but I think the teams have kind of taken a little bit of liberty with the way that the rules are written in order to implement these solutions. And I think that the FIA might look at those going again forward into the, the coming seasons. I like to think I keep my ear close to the ground and know enough about tech but i've somehow missed the conversation about the bib completely so thank you very much for enlightening me uh we've got one from that one tutorial who says oh i love this question this is actually the question i would ask you had no one else asked it so 
Summers, if there was a way to reduce the overall size of modern Formula One cars, what would be the most realistic approach without compromising speed or safety? Most of what we've seen um, over the, the last sort of decade in terms of increasing the length of the cars come down to two factors realistically, and that is safety measures. So, you know, the lengthening of the nose section, the rear crash structure, and then the other thing is the power unit. If you compare the power unit compared to the outgoing V8, it takes up a lot more space. Technically, in 2026, when we have a revision of the power unit, we might see, again, a shorter wheelbase car appear, hopefully anyway, at least. Uh, and that might revise some of the, you know, the, the issues in terms of the aesthetic uh, of Formula One, because they are quite limousine-like in, in, in many respects. And although we increased the width of the cars to two meters uh, a few years back, never really changed the aesthetic of the car because of the length of them. We do have a limit on the wheelbase this year, but it's still not short enough because of the everything else that's going on around the car um, in terms of safety structures and the power unit. So they are slightly shorter this year than they were last, but it's not by a great deal. I guess a follow-up to that then, if, if you were designing the 2026 regulations and you had to try and ensure a lighter car... Would you bring back something like refueling or, you know, what would your suggestions be? Because I have seen them say that they want to look at trying to lighten the cars, but I don't really see how they can do that with hybrid tech because, you know, batteries weigh a lot. Yeah, this is the problem. And they are talking about a more expansive curse uh, for 2026, which again is problematic because you think, well, if you take away the MGUH, which is again, what has been tabled then you've taken away a method in which to transfer energy between one motor to the other. This is one thing that I don't think most people quite grasp is that the the kinetic unit, which is driving the crankshaft, also can power the MGUH and vice versa without actually ever sending energy to the energy store. The energy store is mandated in its weight. So, you know, that there's not there's not really any gains or, or losses there to be made. In reality, the, the way in which that you, you go about improving uh, the power-to-weight ratio is to increase the capability of the, the combustion engine. And I think you might be looking at a twin-turbo setup. That might be the, the better route to go down. You know, Currently, we have a single turbo unit in the center line of the car. I don't see any reason why not to go down a twin-turbo route uh, to try to, to improve that side of things. But weight is going to always be a problem for Formula One now because of the way in which that the formula has evolved we're never going to get back to sort of 550 kilo cars which we had you know sort of in the the mid 80s Uh, but there has to be some flexibility to get us closer towards that margin i would have thought you know i really hate watching replays from the v10 era the the refueling era so you know 2003 2004 especially those cars look extraordinary and of course they didn't have loads of downforce. They also had they had groove tires as well, but they had so much power relative to their weight that they were just unbelievably quick. I hope they can just find a way to make the cars lighter. I'm, I'm praying for a miracle here, Summers. We've got a question here from Motor Race Addict saying, in terms of upgrades for the rest of the season, where on the cardboard teams will be spending their upgrade budget? Whose designs will be the other teams be looking to copy? I have noticed that some teams seem to be kind of looking at kind of Red Bull's aero philosophy with their side pods. It's interesting that no one's really copying the Ferrari, despite the fact that the Ferrari 
has been probably the best car all season. I thought you followed Alpine quite closely, Anil. Oh, okay. Ah, oh, someone else called me out on this because I made this mistake recently as well. Okay, with the exception of Alpine copying them, yeah, do you think other teams might go down that route then? I think the, the biggest issue that you've got there is that Ferrari have a very good base car in as in as much as from the start of the season from that concept to move towards a concept a la Williams let's say because they've just currently moved towards the Red Bull philosophy uh, from a very different end of the spectrum to then also take on board the resources that are required to think about what Ferrari are doing is going to be quite significant and it might have meant that Williams would have to delay by another four or five races, at which point then have you given up for the season? As with every set of regulation, you will start to see convergence. And I do think you might see other teams maybe move in that direction towards the start of next season. I'm not sure we will this season, uh, just purely from uh, the perspective of teams kind of honing in on other areas where you know the low-hanging fruit is, because essentially that's what we're looking for. You know, you want to make the most progress you can for the least little amount of development resource that you possibly can. So there are other areas where perhaps there are potential to make gains. As the convergence appears into 2023, then you might start to see other teams make that gamble and move more towards a Ferrari solution. If indeed in their wind tunnel and CFD results, it does prove fruitful. And I think it's worth pointing out that the teams that have copied the Red Bull haven't exactly become massively fast overnight you know aston martin yeah well yeah. there there is a, there is a theory that you have to understand what you've copied um in many respects as well i mean aston martin have been here before haven't they with the sort of mercedes-esque solution that they ran a couple of seasons ago uh, and it takes time to to understand a completely different philosophy if you look at the the base aston martin uh, that started the year compared to the car that they're currently running, it is vastly different. So it means that you are having to understand not only the aerodynamic concept, but how that has an impact on your setup. And I think that's where Aston has started to make inroads now. We've started to see Sebastian really start to to make an impact um, over the last couple of ra- races. But they're not going to jump to the front of the pack because you know they still fundamentally don't have the Red Bull. Yes, it is very much a copy of a copy, but it is not the same car. So there are things within the Red Bull that Aston don't have at their disposal. Uh, And so even if you do copy a concept, you still have to work out how to make it work. If only they had 3D cameras, Summers. Uh, Moving on, we've got Trick Understanding 85 lined up. So do you want to just unmute yourself, mate, and ask away? About the driver moves. Will Alpine let Piastri go to Williams or will De Vries go there first? Oh, Nick De Vries. I don't think he's going to get a drive. Summers, if you had to predict, I guess, the driver moves for next year, you know, what's going to go on with Piastri? Well, yeah, I mean, Piastri, they need to find a seat for it at the end of the day. There's a lot of manoeuvring going on, isn't there? You only have to look at the situation with Gasly, you know, with Red Bull as a group coming out and saying that we, we've signed Pierre for another season because they didn't want to end up in a situation where they were in contract negotiations with the likes of McLaren. Personally, if I was Alpine, I would be trying to find Piastri a seat because he needs seat time for, for when he moves into to the main team. But it's, you know, it's where do you, where do you put him? And unfortunately, Alpine are in a situation where they don't actually supply anybody else either. You know, that's where 
other teams like Ferrari have a benefit because they have teams where they can put their other drivers. So they have kind of boxed themselves in, in many respects with Piastri. But with Williams perhaps making a step, there is potential there. But we do have to remember where some of the money comes from in terms of, of Williams and um, Latifi's you know, family do have some sponsorship on, involved in that particular team. If only we had a few more teams, eh, Summers? Or indeed, third cars. Uh, we've got a question from Welsh Toby saying, we've had a lot of track limit monarchy recently. A lot is an understatement. I lost count of the amount of uh, track limit warnings that appeared on my screen during the Austrian Grand Prix. Is there something can be that can be easily done to force drivers to keep within track limits or else lose time automatically? As a user, you know, he's just suggested his own opinion. He's a big fan of gravel traps around the outside of corners because if a driver tries to use them a bit too much, they get a natural penalty because they you know, lose time. But what's your opinion on track limits and how would you like to see them enforced? Shot collars. That might work. Um, <laughs> They're not dogs. They're not dogs, others. <laughs> um, but it would stop them going over the track limits. Um, I, I think we would always have this discussion. I, I think the reason that we won't see gravel return is because it adds a level of complexity when we talk about modelling accidents and incidents. Uh, and that's why the FIA have moved away from it. And because the formula, the FIA's grading, including uh, MotoGP circuits on the same calendar as Formula One circuits, makes it difficult in some respects as well. I mean, my, my problem more in terms of track limits is sausage curbs and getting rid of those. I mean, grass is an obvious deterrent as well. But again, it's a problem in terms of the modelling when, when you you know try to understand what would happen if there was an accident in, in a particular corner. And I think that's why we've ended up with huge runoff areas. I mean, the other option is what we see at the circuit we're just about to go to at Paul Ricard, which is you know more abrasive asphalt off the line. That is technically a way of preventing drivers going offline because then they destroy their tyres. Uh, and obviously, that is detrimental to not only lap time for qualifying, but also during the, the course of a race stint. So realistically, I see that as the only alternative to, to solve that problem. Because when you start getting involved with curbing and, and all of that sort of thing, you just add ancillary drama that could cause problems. Yeah, and I think the other issue as well is if you start deleting lap times because a driver's gone a millimetre over, how can you make that clear to the audience that have paid a lot of money to attend a Grand Prix what's happened? I remember being sat at Cops Corner at Silverstone, I think it was 2016, and it was one of the years where they started to delete times if you went off at Cops. And I remember there were a couple of occasions where a driver would complete a lap, you'd, you'd think they're into Q2 or Q3, and then you'd find out that they hadn't made it, but you didn't know why. If there was a gravel trap there, then you would have known because you would have seen the dust get kicked up. I think we're going to call it there. But before we do, Summers, um, sorry to call you a guinea pig, but you are going to be a guinea pig because before we finish today, we've come up with a bit of an idea. You're going to be the first person that ever does this. It's going to be a quiz. It's an F1 subreddit mastermind. And every time we do a talk, we're going to give 10 questions to the person that's invited to talk. And we're going to create a leaderboard. I know you used to watch Top Gear. I'm pretty sure you did. So it's going to be a Top Gear style leaderboard. And at the end of the year, we're going to call back the two people that have the highest scores and we're going to put them in a head-to-head. -head. I know you've not done any like homework on this because I literally only just told you about it. Sprung it upon me, yes. I have. Right. Are you ready? This will go down in history. You're the first ever 
F1 subreddit mastermind contestant. Are you ready? Yes. Here we go. In the edit, I'm going to add some really tense music here. Right. Question one. Which driver replaced Luca Badoa as Felipe Massa's replacement in the 2009 F1 season? Giancarlo Fisichella. It was. Oh, I should have done like a really long pause before confirming that just to add the tension. <laughs> Number two. Finish this sequence. Schumacher. Alonso. Alonso. Raikkonen. Hamilton. Button. Correct. And what was that sequence? It was the Drivers' Championship from 2000 and something to 2009. Correct. Yep. 2004, 2009. Got it. Right. Two for two. At which circuit did Michael Schumacher win his second World Championship in 1995? So this is the circuit at which crowned him champion. You had to go down the Schumacher route where where my knowledge tends to fall down. 1995. I don't even know if you were born then. <laughs> I was certainly born, yes. <laughs> um, 95. Uh, I, I don't know is the answer, but I'm going to go with something random like Fuji. That is unbelievable. Yes. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. Oh, incredibly. <laughs> You've got the right country, and it, it's not Suzuka, which <sighs> you ever thought. It is the TI circuit, also known as AIDA, which held the Pacific Grand Prix. It only Close, held... but no cigar. Absolutely. Sorry for getting your hopes up when I said I can't believe it. That was a, a proper fist pump, I could tell. Right. Question four. The last driver to win a race with a Renault-powered engine or power unit was who? The last driver to win a race with a Renault-powered engine or power unit was who? It's, it's either Max Verstappen or Daniel Ricciardo. And I'm going to go with Danny Rick. Is that your final answer, Summers? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's your nervous laugh. It's actually Esteban Ocon. Oh, yes. Hungry. There are people in this chat right now thinking... Yeah. I could have got that. I could have been yes. on that Reddit leaderboard. Right, okay. <clears throat> Question five. You had a promising start and you've started to falter. You remind me of, so far, you just remind me of Heike Kobelainen's F1 career, but let's see where we go. <laughs> Max Chilton made his debut with which Formula One racing team? Well, the obvious answer is Marussia. Is that your final or answer? It, or, or was it Virgin? Oh, here we go. Here we go. Oh, I can't help you. I can't help you. See, 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 this is the problem when you have teams that basically converge into different names in terms of sponsorship deals. People are so, here for a quiz. They're not here for a rant. Come on, someone. No, uh, Who are you yeah, going to go for? Well, you know you know my problem with, with chassis names as well. <laughs> I hate it when teams change from one chassis name to another. McLaren. Um, I'm going to have to push you here. I, I'm going to say Marussia. You're right. There we go. He's pulled it out the bag, listeners. (laughs) Question six. Jano Trulli won one Formula One Grand Prix in his career. What circuit did he win at? Don't know, but do they have a train there? (laughs) I believe there was actually a train during that race. A a trolley train. Exactly. Yes. Which race did Jano Trulli win? He only won Um, one. He was at... Toyota, I would imagine. Oh no, because Toyota didn't win, so it must have been a Renault. 
Oh, he's piecing it together. He's piecing it together. Uh, I, I honestly don't know the answer to this one. I'm, I'm going to go to Japan again, and I'm going to go for Suzuka. Oh, summers. Summers, summers, summers. It wasn't Suzuka. It was Monaco. Oh, a definite trolley train. Absolutely. It was a race where, if I remember correctly, Schumacher had won the first six races of the year, but he crashed out under a safety car with Montoya in the tunnel. Oh, yeah, what a way to win your first and only Grand Prix. Mm. Right. Question seven. A power unit token development system was put in place in 2014. How many tokens were the power unit manufacturers? Oh, you're not even going to let me finish the question. (laughs) How many tokens were teams allowed to spend on the updated 2015 power units? I'm going to say 26. You're very confident, Summers. I'm not very confident. It's just a number that I remember regarding the token system. It could, oh, either be, could either be 32 or 26, and I'm going with 26. It was 32. Yeah, okay. I, I think 26 was for the following year, and then they ended up yeah. scrapping them all together, didn't they? Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I gave you the answer, just not in the right order. <laughs> it's okay. This is only going down in internet you know, history, so it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Which circuit opened the 2020 F1 season? Which circuit opened held the season opener of the 2020 F1 season. Uh, Red Bull ring. It was very good. I knew you'd get that one. I threw a slightly easier one in there for you. (laughs) You threw me a bone. Absolutely. Right. Question nine. How many wins does Ayrton Senna have in Formula One? Oh, no. Not questions like this, Anil. If you want a hint, it's less than Lewis Hamilton's 103. I I know that. I'm going to go with 52. If the question was, how many wins does Alan Prost have? And you said 52, <laughs> you'd still be wrong because he's got 41. <laughs> he's got 51, sorry. Senna has 41. <sighs> yeah. You tried so hard and got so far. And I failed end, so hard. You have. The moral of the story is never try. But we have one final question for you to redeem yourself. You're currently on a score of four. Question 10. Can I get, can I get halfway? And you get halfway, and you never know, this might get you back in at the end of the year for the final. How many engine manufacturers were on the grid in the first year of the V8 engines? Oh, oh. Oh, I know. That, there's a tr- that's a trick question, Anil, because Ferrari had two engines at their disposal. Okay. Because they, they had a V10 okay. and a V8. They did. In the, okay, okay, Mr. I'm an expert. Ferrari counters one for this example. <laughs> Okay, so we've got Ferrari, Cosworth, um, BMW, Honda. I'm going to go for seven. You didn't even name them all and you've guessed for seven. Well, the correct answer is seven. Yes. Renault, Mercedes, Ferrari, Toyota, Cosworth, Honda, and BMW. Those were the days. Seven manufacturers. And that brings you to a final score of five. Well, I tried. Wow. You did. And as I say, you're the first person to ever go through this. Every time we do a talk, I believe we're going to have one next week, we're going to put everyone through this, 10 questions. At the end of the year, we'll be inviting people back for a final. So you never know. It could be you, Summers. I very much doubt it, but we will we will see. Right. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, before we wrap up, Summers, how can people kind of keep in touch with you? Um, if, they, if they've got an interest in Formula One tech, where can they go? Okay, so uh, the obvious place is to go to my Twitter feed, 
which I'll just plug the the mega thread that I put up yesterday, which is um, exceptional, by the way. Thanks. Detailing all of the updates that the teams have done so far this season. My Twitter feed is Summers F1, um, and obviously you can see my content on motorsport.com, and occasionally it's also posted over on Autosport as well. Occasionally, so it's not always. No, they don't always post the same content from from one to the other. Okay, I didn't realise that. Thank you very much for joining us, Summers. Uh, And thank you to all our listeners for joining in. As always, this will be available on demands, either via the subreddit or on Spotify and Apple or your usual tool once we've had a play around. I might try and add some very dramatic music to that quiz at the end. And I think I might even cut out that fist pump you did when you guessed Fuji uh, and make it my ringtone just so it lives on can, forever, Matt. Can I, can I just say thank you to everybody that asked questions and everybody that's been here listening as well. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Great stuff. Right. Until, until next time. Um, yeah, thank you, everyone. And thanks again, Summers. And we'll speak to you soon.